You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, friends. Uh, You know, in 2020, it's a lot more acceptable to call something a truth than it is to call something the truth. And um, I feel like I have felt um, that kind of worldview my entire life. And um, what uh, smart uh, philosophers would say is that we live in a postmodern world. And a postmodern world says uh, really that um, everybody is allowed to have their truth, their little truth, but there's really no one big overarching truth that everybody is accountable for or that explains everything. And so even from a young age, I can remember this being taught to me. And I feel like I see it every direction. Uh, was watching a show on Netflix with my Uh, family, even this week with Zac Efron called Down to Earth. Um, I often get confused for Zac Efron. I know we we look um, really similar to each other, but uh, he and his crew are going all throughout the world uh, looking for healthy and sustainable options. And uh, it's actually a really interesting show. And he actually encounters some Christians in the south of France, and I believe he's respectful to what they believe, but in very clear terms, was like, this is Uh, their truth. I don't necessarily abide by this. And so it's presented as this is what they believe, but this is not what everybody should believe. Um, Again, because in our culture, there is a growing, a big skepticism towards one big story. Um, And what's interesting is in today's Psalm, as we finish our Psalm series, we're going to look at Psalm 145, where I think David, not a postmodern, but a pre-modern, actually has a different perspective, uh, where he's going to say things like, the God that I call on in truth, and then the God that has dominion throughout all time. And so as we read this, I think one of the most important questions that we need to ask ourselves is this, and that's, do we rejoice in and proclaim the unrivaled grace and truth of Jesus? And so let's jump in as we really try to work through that question together. Again, in Psalm 145, I'll start in verse one. It says this, it says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. I learned um, in a writing class one time that the verb is one of the most strong, or the, the verb is one of the stronger ways to communicate. And David, it seems like, is racking his brain trying to think through every verb he can use to describe his praise and adoration of God. He says, uh, extol, bless, commend, declare, meditate, speak, pour forth, sing aloud, and give thanks. And in verses one and two, he's making a declaration of both eternal allegiance, like a once and for all kind of statement where he says, I will extol you and bless your name forever and ever. But in the second verse, he actually makes more of a daily commitment, which I believe is probably even more significant. This isn't just a christening at the end, at the beginning of his life, but this is rather him saying, every day I will bless you. And I think that's significant That's significant because he's saying that um, this for me will be a habit. Um, I will be um, a daily 
um, I, I will daily affix my mind on the worthiness of God. And somebody smart said one time, I don't remember who it was, but they said that um, how you live your days is indeed how you live your lives, uh, how you live your life rather. And what David is saying here is, yes, an eternal allegiance, but also a kind of daily commitment that will mark his life and most clearly show the people around him what he believes. And he keeps going in verse three, and he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. And so thought about some of the more beautiful places in my life that I've seen. And I know you can perhaps think about um, just the, maybe the most majestic or transcendent place you've ever visited on earth. Maybe that's Hawaii, maybe that's Yellowstone, maybe that's somewhere in Europe, who knows. But what we know about that is that as beautiful and as breathtaking as that place is, um, it's it's three-dimensional. It's empirically understood. It's actually quite searchable that you could see every aspect of the thing that is beautiful if you had enough time to do it. And David is saying that the truth and the beauty of God is actually more transcendent, that there's not a category, that there's not a way to actually comprehend how wonderful and how infinite and how vast God is. And he's just ascribing glory to him. To him. And he continues, and he says, I believe because of this, I think the argument continues in verse four, that one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And this is a passage or a verse that we've heard before about as Christians, one generation is to commend what we believe to the next generation. And I think what was interesting this week in my study of this passage was that I saw that um, I had maybe um, seen that um, responsibility uh, to commend what I believe more as a duty, more as a mechanical things that Christians must do. And what's interesting, I believe, in this passage is that David's communicating this more like the way a fountain works, like a theologian hundreds of years ago said that it's no fault of a fountain when it's prone to overflow. And I believe what he's saying is what we love and what we treasure will ultimately come out of us, come out of us and that will be commended uh, to those around us. And, um, you know, COVID has been interesting for a number of reasons. And one has just been the way that it has intentionally affixed my family uh, to our little neighborhood. And I think one of the real benefits of that is just getting to know our neighbors better. And so uh, across the street from us is a family and uh, they have kids and our kids just love uh, their kids. And uh, Dana and I have just really loved getting to know uh, Chris and Jen. And um, uh, Chris is a home builder. And I actually met Chris's dad and Chris's dad is a retired home builder and he's built homes for 60 plus years of his life. And so raised a son who decided to build homes and got a love for building homes from his dad. And so Chris and I talk about that all the time. And it's and it's probably mostly because I ask, uh, I'm curious, George, I have been my entire life. I ask a million questions and drive people crazy. But in all of our downtime, there's actually this thing that's pulled us together and it's a house directly across the street from me and next to him that's being built. And so he's walking me through the craftsmanship and I um, would do this differently. I might do this the same. I think it's neat how they're doing that, but he's coming at these conversations with the love. And I believe that what's really just coming out of him is what he loves and what's coming out of him is actually benefiting me because it's giving me an interest in houses and home building and craftsmanship that I didn't think 
I had before. And I think the argument here is just that, uh, I don't think it's anything new that like from the heart, the mouth speaks. What we love and what we talk about are inextricably linked. And I believe this is the point that David is making in Psalm 145, something interesting about this Psalm, just so you know, it's actually a Hebrew acrostic. And so um, what that means is that it's working through the Hebrew alphabet and every uh, letter of the alphabet is assigned with an aspect of praise. It's actually David's last uh, Psalm that he contributes to all of the Psalter here. But we keep going in verses five and seven, and he continues with the language, he says, and on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. He's, he's thinking about purposeful mindfulness towards God. And then he says in six and seven, he says, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and I shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And I, I admit, like, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I just I just use the word unsearchable. Like if, if we're honest and, and you look at this language, it is high-minded. I mean, it is like um, I am I'm speaking of the more transcendent aspects of God. And um, even in communicating this, this God may feel really far away from you right now. And it might feel like the God who is unknowable and a God who is behind the curtain and a God that you can't have any contact with. And um, I, I'll just admit, and I think this is true in my story and maybe yours, it, it really, um, it, it wasn't the far awayness of God um, that I first experienced in my relationship with him. It was actually um, the, um, the nearness of God. It was, um, it, it was a God who came closer, but I think there's, there's still a question in, in, in some of our minds, does he come closer? Is he just far away or does he come close? And that's why I think the next few verses are just critically important here, verses uh, eight and nine. And let me just tell you about him first. Um, David is hearkening back to Exodus. And so these are very famous passages in the Hebrew narrative, really throughout the Bible, um, that this is what Moses says uh, when the covenant is reaffirmed, when they repledge and retake the covenant together, really after failing as Israel on the other side of the Red Sea. And so um, these are words that everybody would have known. They're especially significant. And they say this again, verses eight and nine. They say that the Lord is gracious and merciful, that he is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. It says the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so I wanna spend some time just working through that because to move past that too quickly, I think would be a big miss for us, especially if we have questions about the nearness of God. So when he says the Lord is gracious, what he's saying is that, it's that the Lord is full of unmerited favor towards us. He has a unconditional and unlimited amount of favor towards us. And it's not just that it's gracious, it's that he's merciful. It's that he loves to, to hold us close after we fail. He loves to be there for us after we make mistakes and tell us that everything is gonna be okay. Think of the prodigal son. Think of the way the father runs towards his wayward son who's made every mistake. And what David is saying is that the Lord is gracious and merciful. And it says he's slow to anger. And this one, guys, in my spiritual journey has meant as much as anything. You know what this means? It means that he's not quickly angry or mad at us. 
he is not often mad at us. Like his disposition towards us is not a neutral face. It's not a frown. It's not a grumpy dad looking for acceptance. It's it's a smile. It's love. It's warmth. It's hospitality. It is a God who who is not often or quickly mad at us. And that's not all. It says he's abounding in steadfast love. Oh my goodness. That's hesed. That's this really significant Hebrew word. And what this is saying is that he is abounding in loyal love based on his own pledge to be faithful to that love. So what he's saying is, I'm going to love you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to base that covenant on my character, which is unchangeable. And if that's not enough, David, I believe in verses 6 and 7, calls all of this his goodness and righteousness, his abundant goodness and righteousness. And, you know, I think if you're anything like me, like, guys, here's the thing, I'm... I'm um, I'm like, I'm not describing, like when I'm reading this Psalm, I'm not describing my regular spiritual journey here. Okay, like like I'm not, if if you looked at my journal of what I'm working through, it's not me saying this describes the fullness of my life. No, in fact, when I read this Psalm, I am painfully aware of how given I am to lesser things, of how I don't have a posture of gratitude and praise. I'm I'm telling you, this thing reads me, and as it reads me, it breaks me. But here's the really important part of this psalm. This psalm was not ever originally describing us. This psalm was a psalm that Jesus Christ would have known. It's a psalm that he would have sang, and it's a song that he lived. And the abundant goodness of him living this means that these things actually, the way they come near to us is by his incarnation. It's by his life. And it's ultimately by him doing for us what we could never do for ourselves and live perfectly in line with God and righteously and justly with his brothers and sisters. And it's not only the goodness that makes these kinds of verses come near to see how close God has actually come. It's not just the abundant goodness, but it's the righteousness. Because what we know uh, from the scriptures is that our righteousness is the free gift of what Jesus Christ has given us by absorbing our sin. Really, the fact that this passage reads me and shows me where I am not living up, right? Where, where I fail to worship God and I worship other things. What I see in this is actually a description of Jesus Christ who, 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 who offers his life on the cross as a sacrifice, painfully absorbing my sin and freely giving me everything that I was supposed to be. This is the gift of his abundant goodness and righteousness. And David doesn't even know it like we know it because we're on the other side of the cross. And when you read the life of Jesus into this passage, you see he's the hero who sings the songs to God that we could never actually sing ourselves. And if that's not enough, he keeps going, verses 10 and 11. And he says, 
All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. It says the, the saints will bless you because of what you're done, what you've done. And it says that the the stories that will resound amongst God people, God's people, will speak to the wondrous acts of God. And I'm, I'm telling you, like this verse, like I think this is hitting me especially now because one of the direct fallouts of COVID nineteen is that we're not able to gather together as a church, and I'm not able to. Uh, maybe uh, experience these kind of micro testimonies, if you will. Like I'm not able to see a number of people who, um, who, who whose love for Jesus and for others stirs me in a way that I don't have when I see them. But uh, of the handful of people that I, I do have in my life right now, Brett Wiseman is one of them, my, my counterpart up here. And um, I didn't know him when he was 19 years old, but I know the way that he described himself. And uh, he's a freshman playing college baseball and uh, he's got all kinds of vices and he's doing things that's probably not even appropriate for me to say. And he remembers a moment in his life where a church came to serve him and his baseball team. And he remembers just just having bitterness and, and, and judgment in his heart and just mock I me. Mean, why in the world are they here? Is this kind of some kind of self-righteous thing that they do? I mean, he would just describe somebody who was cold. And, and what, what's, what's so interesting about that is... When you, when you know Brett Wiseman now, 20 years later, like, like for me to even describe him that way, like, it, it's, it's just crazy. Like, like you, you're talking about one of the warmest, one of the kindest. You're talking about one of the steadiest people that I know. You're talking about if, if I need a principled, loving voice in my life, I can call him and expect it a hundred out of a hundred times. And I promise you over the course of, um, 20 years. It, it wasn't him getting into counseling and it wasn't him reading a couple books and it wasn't him taking a couple trips to the lake and, you know, just feeling it. like I'm like the reason why Brett Wiseman that I described in the past doesn't sound like the Brett Wiseman of today is because the Brett Wiseman of the past is not the Brett Wiseman of today. The Brett Wiseman of the past is a different man than the Brett Wiseman of today. And that's because the old Brett died and the new Brett came alive when he met Jesus Christ and when Jesus Christ transformed his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. But I, I just, like, there's these little miracles around us all the time that we're missing right now, and I just hate it. And so maybe by way of reminder, I can tell you, and I've heard people say this over the years, talking about, well, you know, I have a really boring testimony, like I came to faith when I was six years old, and I'm just going, hey, listen, like, that may feel like a boring testimony to you, but let me put it another, another way for you. Um, God was so kind in awakening your soul at a young age that you actually have no idea what your life would look like apart from him. And I promise you apart from him, your life would look woefully different than it does right now. And so as an evidence of grace for us right now, as the stories the saints tell to bless God for what he's done, David marks this in his Psalm. And in the verses 12 and 13, it gets especially real. And he says, to make known to the children of man, your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And he says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. And there it is. Okay. That's a truth claim. 
here we go. <laughs> what David is saying is that this God is the God above, other, above all other gods. And, uh, and maybe you don't like that. Like maybe even now as you hear that, that presses against some of your sensibilities. And so let me help. Let me try to think through this with you. You know, when we go back to postmodernism and we go back to this shaping narrative around all of us, that there are no, there, there is no one truth that everybody should believe, but there are actually a lot of little truths that people believe. And you just kind of spend some time working through that and you go, okay, so you're saying that there are no universal truth claims whatsoever. And, and perhaps somebody would say yes. And you go, okay, well, I think what what one might fail to see is that saying that there are no universal truth claims is a universal truth claim. What, what, a, what, what a postmodern worldview is saying is there are no universal truth claims, that uh, there's no one story. What, there, there, there are a bunch of little stories, but there's no one shaping, defining story. There, are, there is not one shaping and defining story except the statement that there is not one shaping and defining story. So a postmodern says, um, don't mind what, what I'm doing um, by making a all-encompassing truth claim. And so I feel like even that, like at the end of the day, everybody, like, and, and I, like, I, I mean, I'm thinking about conversations with people that I love. I heard a guy say the other day, he said, Matt, I, I think you're, you're a good guy and this guy's a good guy and I'm a good guy and we're all trying to, do our best. And I was thinking through that and I understand his heart in saying it, but, um, but, but, you know, if you think about the idea that you're a good person and you go, okay, well, what, what's, what's the basis for that? And, can, and, and let's just say for the sake of the conversation, let's just take God completely out of the conversation. Okay. So, um, and then let's think about all the advice that we've ever had, that I've ever had for other people. And uh, at the end of my life, just take this long scroll out and say, Matt, any time that you gave advice for how somebody else should live, just write out that long list. And whether they knew you were telling them the advice or not, just write all of that out, okay? Did I live up to that standard of how I thought other people should live all the time? Um, I don't think so. And I think that there's a really good chance that if you did the same exercise, you would end up in the same place. And I think what you would find is that even by your own standards of how other people should live, that there is a pretty significant gap between what you should be and what you are. And I believe that significant gap is why grace, which is introduced through Christianity, is so important for us to understand. Um, I... Um, um, when Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life, that is not the defining moment that makes what we believe this ultimate truth claim. This, that's actually just more clarification that this God, the God that David praises in Psalm 145, has always claimed to be the one true God that has dominion and a kingdom that is everlasting, verse 13, and dominion that endures throughout all generations. And that's why C.S. Lewis, a 20th century British philosopher and a later convert to Christianity, a professor at Oxford said this, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. 
the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so Christianity, I believe, is to be fully, fully um, um, believed, um, fully lived, or, or, or I believe to, to, to be rejected. But I, I don't believe um, as a worldview, it will be marginally effective for you. If it's just one aspect of your life, um, I, 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 it, I just don't think it, that's, that's not what it's designed for. It's designed to be an all-encompassing view of how God, the one true God, created us to live and be. And um, I'm not saying that there's not room for doubt in that. I think one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that we have plenty of room to doubt. Um, but I also don't want doubt in my life or your life to be leveraged as this perpetual season where we don't really work through what we actually believe because at the end of the day, all of us are hanging our hats on something. All of us have a truth claim that we are living by. And so that's why I think David's question, do we rejoice and proclaim in the unrivaled grace and truth of Jesus is important, but there's more. Um, There's a lot more and we'll read verse 13. He says, um, the second part of 13, he says, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. Um, That passage is in brackets for a reason. Um, It was actually not part of the uh, original manuscripts. It was found in a later manuscript. Again, I um, outlined here that, uh, that this is an acrostic. And so this is actually the one missing letter. I believe it was part of the original text, but even if it's not, the idea, uh, the ideas communicated here, I think, are well within bounds of Scripture. But just want to be faithful to perhaps your questions there. And so, it says the Lord is faithful in all of His words and, and words and kind in all of His works. And and here's why I think that's important. When you think about the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God does not mean the exactness of God. It does not mean the 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 certainty of God working things out in the most consistent, palatable way to you. Um, I, uh, I went to Old Faithful with, uh, in Yellowstone with my family, and uh, we got to sit there. And if you know anything about that geyser, um, for the last 120 years that they've been studying it, uh, every 45 to about 90 minutes, that geyser goes off, and you don't know when it's going to go off. And so we were there, and uh, we were kind of more towards the latter time, and there was about five minutes to go, and you could feel some antsiness and some anxiety. Is it really going to happen? Uh, and with about two minutes to spare, Old Faithful was Old Faithful. We saw it, we applauded, and we left. And as I was walking back to the parking lot, I thought, what a, what, what a beautiful description for faithfulness because they don't call it old 45 minutes. They don't call it old certainty. They call it old faithful. And you don't know exactly when it's gonna happen, but you know it's gonna happen. And the, the faithfulness of God does not mean that we um, stop developing the faithfulness, like our own faith in his faithfulness. Those aren't mutually exclusive for us to grow in our faith that God will be faithful means that God is who he is and will respond in kind the way that he will in his own time. And so we believe he's faithful and it just keeps going, man. In verse 14, he says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Think about how that's especially significant right now in a cancel culture where 
you know, I think where a lot of people are just walking in, in, a, in a lot of fear, like, man, is some mistake that I've made from my past, something I said going to be found out and people are just going to ostracize me and push me away and move on. And, you know, maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. But here's what I know. When the, like, when the Bible describes you falling, it means you don't have anything to stand on or anything to hold on to. And what this is saying is on the absolute hardest day of your life, God says he will never cancel us. In fact, on the hardest day of our life, he will be closer to us than a brother. And even if everybody else has walked away on the worst pitfall of our life, he will be as near as he has ever been and we keep going, verses 15 through 17. Let me read them. They say, the eyes of the Lord look to you and you give them food in due season and you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And it says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. And um, smart theologians would say that these verses describe what's known as the common grace of God. Um, one author, Tim Keller, says this about common grace. He says, common grace, the common grace love of God means that God gives wisdom. He gives moral intuitions. He gives gifts of beauty across the human race, and especially in times of difficulty. It says he upholds all who fall. He gives endurance. He gives hope. He gives fortitude. He gives strength across the human race because he loves all he has made. And that's so important that God loves everyone. He loves Dallas. He loves our world. He, I mean, that is so clear in the scriptures. And you think about the common grace of God, as hard as this season has been for us, it is not as hard as it could be. And that is because the Lord is kind to us. I mean, I'm just thinking of a few examples, like um, that, that nobody in Dallas's water will be shut off, even if they can't pay their bills, that um, hospitals to this point have still been open, that our government has stepped in and helped businesses and people who have need, that we've actually had more time with family and friends together. And I'm not for a second saying that it's not hard, but that there is a silver lining, that the common grace of God means things are not as hard as they could be. But in the common grace, I believe verses 18 through 20 teach us about a special grace as well. And it says this, it says, the Lord is near to all who call on him. This is different now. The conversation's changing. It says, to all who call on him in truth, who know and believe who he is, what he says about himself, what he says about the world he created, what he says about us as his creatures. And he says, uh, to those who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. And he also hears their cry and saves them. He says, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God's saying that, that what David's saying is that there's a, a special relationship for the humble who call him Lord and that he's near and, and to describe that relationship, I mean, this is wonderful. He says he fulfills desires. It says he hears cries, that he saves, that he preserves, that there is a special grace. And even in his love for everyone, there is a special grace towards those who respond to his call. And, um, and, and, and I think this is where you might feel a little bit of tension because verse 20 talks about, um, it talks about how uh, he'll destroy the wicked, um, and I believe what that's just saying here is that um, God loves everyone. And because he loves everyone, he will not allow evil to exist. It pains him 
to see evil. And I believe this is an argument you see throughout the Bible. Genesis 6 says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and his heart was filled with pain. Isaiah 63 says, in all of their stress, he too was distressed. In Judges 10, it says, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And I know even as a father, when I look at my kids, if they're especially wayward or disobedient, and I have to say hard things to them, I say hard things to them out of love, especially out of love, because I want them to experience the best. And like any lover that you and I have ever longed for, God has loved us perfectly and has sacrificed everything for our joy. He could not come closer than how than, 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 than how far he's come. Think about it. The father gives up his most precious thing, his son. The, so, the son gives up what is most uh, dear to him, his life, for the sake of what is more dear, his bride. Like there's, there's, there's nothing more he could do to convey the depth of his love for us and his heart for us as his creatures is to flourish in right relationship. But I think this can only go so far where if we will not receive his love, we will, he will ultimately give us over to what we have chosen to love more than him. And in choosing to love something that he has created more than the one who has created it, this will lead to our disintegration. We will become too hollow. It's not what we were made for. We were made to love the God who created us. And that's David's praise in this song for us to see it and to rejoice in it. Everybody has a truth claim. Everybody believes something about the world what comes out of our mouths are ultimately in our hearts, what we treasure the most. And so my encouragement to you today is to not just believe a truth, but to believe the truth. And the truth is that there is a love that is stronger than death, evidence objectively in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us and for our sins. And so in this Psalm series, we have worked through a ton of emotions, man. We've worked through fear in Psalm 34. We've worked through what we do on um, hard days in Psalm 51. We've worked through what we do in dark days in Psalm 88. And the hope in all of this is to remember that our call as believers in Jesus and as those who fear the Lord is to bring all of us to all of him in worship, knowing that he is slow to great, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, Some friends, uh, a a local church made some signs and I've seen them all throughout my neighborhood and I think they're brilliant. I wish we would have thought of them. Maybe we'll copy them. And the sign says that the church has left the building and uh, they're right. The church has left the building. And uh, even in the loss of that experience, um, we have um, this unique Uh, grace as long as we have it um, to grow especially close to a smaller amount of people. And why not here and why not now as you bless the Lord, share what you ultimately believe um, is the most wonderful news to those around you. It's not just good news for you, it's good news for them too. Let me pray. 
Father, I thank you for your love. I pray that you would remind us um, that you are not a God who is far away. You are a God who has come near in Jesus. And so I pray that we would think on your abundant goodness and righteousness and that we would live in such a way that our hearts are worshipers of you and lovers of our city and lovers of those around us. And I pray for more joy, not only for us, but for those we are called to love in Christ's name. Amen.